Costume Drama Rewind coming to you today from these continued historic times. So in January, we were ready to journey with you all from the muddy streets of Victorian New York to the troubled days of 1970s Uganda. And then, because we are all still living through historic times, I got COVID. And then I got pneumonia. And then I got an allergic reaction to all my pharmaceuticals. And then we thought Laura got COVID. I'm okay. Such is podcasting through historic times, friends. But we're back, and this time we're taking a trip to another uncomfortable time in history, Tudor London. Today, in honor of the recent 500th and 44th, did I get it right? Yes. Excellent. Anniversary of Thomas More's birth and the upcoming 36th anniversary of Megan's, we're covering the 1966 film A Man for All Seasons, which was adapted for the screen from the 1960 play by Robert Bolt. This movie is directed by Fred Zinman, and it stars Paul Schofield, Wendy Hiller, Susanna York, Leo McKern, Robert Shaw, and Orson Welles. So first, a quick synopsis. The setup is pretty familiar to even casual fans of British history. It's 1529, and Henry VIII, played by Robert Shaw, is desperate for a son and heir to continue the Tudor line. He's convinced that he's not going to have a kid with his wife, Catherine of Aragon, and he's determined to get a divorce so he can have children instead with the new deathless love of his life, Anne Boleyn. This will go very well. Most of his counselors are happy to get with the program, but not Sir Thomas More, a scholar, statesman, and the king's dear friend. He is played by Paul Schofield. Everyone wants to bring more around to support the divorce and the remarriage, all the way from Thomas Wolsey, the Cardinal Archbishop of York and Chancellor of England, played by Orson Welles, down to young Richard Rich, a recent Cambridge graduate and Moore's protege, played by John Hurt, and who has a creepy mustache. And who looks like the missing member of the Beatles here. I think everyone did in the 60s. Fair. Anyway, Moore ain't budging. Despite that, when Wolsey falls from grace over his failure to secure the divorce, Moore is named Henry's new chancellor. The pressure to relent and go along only increases as Henry decides to overturn the Catholic Church in England and name himself the head of a new English church. This, of course, will require Moore and all English Catholics to swear an oath denying the authority of the Pope and recognizing Henry as the supreme head of the church. Moore can't do it and resigns to live quietly with his family, thinking that will be enough to save him. Spoiler alert, it isn't. The trap slowly tightens around Moore, and he is eventually imprisoned in the Tower of London. When he still doesn't relent, he is tried for treason and convicted, with an assist from Richard Rich, who gives false evidence in exchange for appointment to a lucrative government office. Moore is beheaded on Tower Hill, declaring himself, quote, the king's good servant, but God's first. So, our first impressions. This one was my idea again. Thanks, Laura. I manipulated her into doing it for this episode because it's almost my birthday. I'm Catholic, so I had been pretty familiar with the broad outlines of Moore's story, but I finally saw this movie about a decade ago when I was preparing for my first visit to London and a couple of friends said I needed to see it before I went. I just fell in love with this film, and my emotional connection to it has only gotten stronger over the years. It's one of those pieces of art that I go back to again and again for comfort and courage. I watched this movie as a world history homework assignment in high school. I mostly remember that the VHS I checked out had some squiggly line issues and sound distortion, but I know that I found it pretty compelling. Watching it this time, I definitely appreciated how it highlighted the dangers of a too powerful monarchy and, frankly, the need for a separation between church and state. And that's what I want to talk about as we get down to the heart of the matter. I have disclosed my own biases up front. 
So I want to talk a little bit about competing interpretations of Moore, who has always been a polarizing figure. On one hand, the morally upright statesman, and on the other, a monstrous, murderous zealot. The latter interpretation started really early. It comes to us first from John Fox's Book of Martyrs, a 16th century polemic that may have its merits as a religious text, but as a historical one is full of errors and outright inventions. That line of thinking about Moore as a monster carries right through to today into texts like Hilary Mantel's Wolf Hall. Historians agree that there's no evidence that Moore took part in torture. He is known to have been involved in the burnings of between three and six people convicted as heretics during the years of his chancellorship. Not great, but not outside the historical average for late medieval and early modern England, and perhaps a little bit below that average. I think it's also important to resist looking at Moore through the lens of presentism, interpreting past events in terms of modern values. You've got to remember when thinking about Moore that he's living in a world where heresy isn't just a difference of opinion. In Moore's world, allowing one heretic to infect others in the community with their dangerous ideas will condemn those people whose lives are already nasty British and short to an eternity of hellfire and damnation and torture and pain. We talked about this a little when we reviewed The Crucible for Spooky October 2020. Just because a particular way of thinking isn't necessarily a reality that the modern era lives in doesn't mean it wasn't real as a rock to the medieval mind. This is not a defense of burning people at the stake. We're good. We're not going there. But an extremely compressed summary of what was a really complicated historical and psychological reality for Moore and people living in his time. The first scene in this movie is this visually striking sequence of a messenger hopping on a boat at Hampton Court Palace, rowing down a river for what seems like ages, and we get lots of shots that make it look like this is all out in the middle of nowhere. And then the guy arrives at Thomas More's place, which turns out to be in Chelsea, as in one of London's richest neighborhoods that's always packed with shoppers, pedestrians, and traffic. I know that London used to be less developed, but it's still kind of odd to actually see what the area might have looked like back then. By the time More moved to Chelsea in 1524, British History Online says the area was basically like a commuter suburb for high-placed government officials, courtiers, and lawyers who worked in Westminster because the city was already becoming overcrowded. Just think of the Thames as the 16th century equivalent to the Tube. And because it was farther out, they were able to have the bigger manor houses and farms that we see in the movie. Moore's estates stretch from Beaufort Street to the King's Road, but historians and archaeologists aren't entirely sure where his main house itself stood, it was forfeited to Henry VIII, for reasons, and later torn down. Today, Chelsea is mostly known for trendy pubs, its Premier League team, and as the neighborhood where Kate Middleton lived before she got married. But there are still a few glimpses of the place that Moore knew. You can visit Chelsea Old Church, where he and his family worshipped. There's a statue of him outside, and you can even sit in what was originally the Moore family's private chapel. It was the only part of the church to survive bombing in the Blitz. And as I read on the Tudor Travel Guide, across the street from the church is Roper's Garden, a part of Moore's estate. The street that the church is on, the very creatively named Old Church Street, formerly Church Lane, is the oldest recorded street in the neighborhood. And most importantly, that's where Kate Middleton's flat was. No, we've never stalked her, I swear. I don't think anybody is convinced. So, since I've talked about how I am an only slightly apologetic Thomas More stan, it will not come as a surprise that I've done a decent amount of More-related tourism. If you really want the full experience, you have to hit up the Houses of Parliament, where the approximate site of More's trial is marked by a plaque in the floor of Westminster Hall. Other famous trials commemorated there in the same way 
are William Wallace's and Charles I's. And I will say that even though more recent films set in the Tudor era have a lot to answer for, this movie really did make me realize how much better we've gotten at finding locations that look reasonably accurate, because the Westminster Hall set in this movie honestly looks like a high school gymnasium. Anyway, if you head east to the Tower of London, the room where Moore was held can only be viewed by appointment with the Tower's Education Department, but they do point out the structure on your Yeoman Warders tour. Moore's headless body is buried in the crypt of the Chapel of St. Peter Ad Vincula, which is the chapel royal within the walls of the tower, and which is to this day one of four chapels in the country that are under the direct personal oversight of the monarch. Weird story that they love to tell on the tour. It used to be that they just buried everyone under the chapel floor. By the time of the reign of Queen Victoria, that floor was collapsing in on itself. It's a pretty small space to have a thousand or so skeletons underneath of it. Victoria was pretty horrified by this development and ordered them to do better. They gathered up the bones and tried to identify them as best they could, which was probably not a terribly accurate process. Those that they thought were the tower's royal victims, like Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard, were reburied at the front of the chapel. Everyone else, presumably including Moore, was packed into two large boxes and placed in the crypt. The chapel is one of my favorite places. You can go and quietly sit when there isn't a tour going on, and even attend Sunday services there. Just show up at the tower's main gate on a Sunday morning dressed like a reasonable adult. This is apparently now a travel podcast. Anyway, leaving the tower and walking uphill, you'll also find the site of the public scaffold, with Moore's name listed among those of other famous executions that took place there. Incidentally, one of those who was later beheaded on the same spot was Henry Howard, the Earl of Surrey, and the son of Thomas Howard, who appears throughout the movie as Moore's friend and foil, an example of someone willing to go along to get along. Today, the area is surrounded by a garden and a considerably larger memorial for merchant marine sailors killed in the First and Second World Wars. Finally, a bit farther afield, Moore's skull is buried with his daughter Meg and her husband in the Roper family chapel, St. Dunstan's Church in Canterbury. Every year, they hold a service there on the anniversary of his death. So now we come to the big question. How many French hoods are we awarding to a man for all seasons? I'll go with four. Good acting, good pacing, good costumes. Who am I to disagree with six Oscars, including Best Picture and Best Actor? Yeah, and Oscar gets really mad when you disagree with him. (laughs) (laughs) So I already told him myself, but it's obviously five full French hoods for me. This movie's a masterpiece, but where it really sets itself apart is in the writing. There's an exchange near the end that, for me, really sums up how beautiful and compelling the writing is and how much it has to say to us today. Quote, If we lived in a state where virtue was profitable, common sense would make us saintly. But since we see that abhorrence, anger, pride, and stupidity commonly profit far beyond charity, modesty, justice, and thought, perhaps we must stand fast a little even at the risk of being heroes. And his daughter responds, but in reason, haven't you done as much as God can reasonably want? And Moore answers her, well, finally, it isn't a matter of reason. Finally, it's a matter of love. For me, a man for all seasons is a matter of love. And while I dry my tears, Laura's going to take us into our sundry others. If you've watched The Tudors, The Spanish Princess, or, let's be honest, almost any period drama about Henry VIII, you might have gotten the idea that the women then all wore super puffy headbands with their hair flowing free. Frockflix, which is a hilarious and educational website run by academics and historic costuming experts, have pretty much made it their life mission to chronicle every offending costume piece, 
and what the headgear of that time really looked like. And they say a man for all seasons does a pretty good job. While the French hoods that are shown are too tall, they at least have layers and actual veils attached. The other women's hats, namely gable hoods, look pretty accurate, and the women have their hair up and covered, like 99% more than all the other movies out there. In short, the movie's Oscar win for Best Costume Design was well-deserved. One fact that's often repeated about this film is that it actually used Hampton Court Palace as a filming location. Even IMDb repeats that. Fake news. Not true. It's actually a very good studio set they use. The setting for Moore's house is an actual historic building, Studley Priory in Oxfordshire, which is richly ironic since the community of Benedictine nuns at Studley... Studley nuns. (laughs) ...was closed down in the dissolution of the monasteries. After the Second World War... The house became a small country hotel that C.S. Lewis and his wife Joy liked to frequent for a beer. Finally, I don't want this episode to end. Actually, I don't ever want it to end. I've got laundry. I don't want this to end without talking a little bit about Thomas More's daughter. As the movie depicts, the two of them had an extremely close relationship, undergirded by the fact that More believed strongly in educating women. Margaret Moore Roper is considered to have been one of the most educated women of the 16th century. She was the first non-royal woman in England to publish under her own name. She was a major translator of the writings of her father's friend Erasmus. She wrote poetry in Latin and Greek. She completed a work of theology titled The Four Last Things. She is a fascinating woman who honestly deserves a film of her own. Get at me, Hollywood producers. After watching this movie, you might have thought, where have I seen these actors before? Well... Paul Schofield played Judge Danforth in The Crucible. He didn't age a day. And if you reference our Crucible episode during Spooky October 2020, I maintain that he's basically playing the same character in both. So Vanessa Redgrave, who plays Anne Boleyn for like a hot second, was Annabeth Westfall in The Butler, the old racist lady, which really narrows it down. (laughs) Nick Tate, a background character here, was a taxi driver in The Great Gatsby, and he was the voice of Ozzy Mandrill in Escape from Monkey Island. And on a fun note, John Hurt, Mr. Richard Rich himself, is Mr. Ollivander from Harry Potter. After all, Mr. Potter, Richard Rich did great things. Terrible, yes, but great. Except, not really. But that's all for this episode of Costume Drama Rewind. Thanks for joining us, and see you next time.